0: If you have your Bibles, would you go to uh, Romans chapter 8, and we'll dig into that in just a minute. Um, an event to remind you of next weekend after um, the after this service, after the fourth service, uh, there's an event called Pizza with a Pastor, and so that's downstairs in the in the basement in the fellowship hall. If you feel like you've been here for a while and you're not getting connected, or maybe you're new here and you haven't been able to meet leadership, that event is for you, so that's an opportunity. There's a clipboard in the back that... Kyle has, and you can sign your name on there, just let him know. I think there's more than just pizza that'll be available, but be sure and let him know that you're coming so we can plan on that. Love to pray with you before we jump into this, so how about if you uh, turn your attention to God's business, let's pray together, and we'll ask him to teach us. Father, we come before you in recognition that uh, we can't do this on our own, So we need you to speak, and we need you to bring truth to us. We're praying that you would illuminate our minds. I pray for every individual in this auditorium right now, those who are watching online, that you would help us to understand your word and even in the hard things that you have to say. God, that we would know you better. We would know better your call on our life and who we are to you. So we pray for that in Jesus' name right now and all God's people said, amen. So you sang that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, at the beginning. Michael did that first for us. That was written by a guy by the name of Robert Robertson, and he was 22 years old when he wrote that. Can you imagine writing that when you're 22? And, uh, and yeah, my mind just wasn't even going to that place at that point. So here's the deal. He was uh, orphaned at five years of age, and his uncle's family took him in. So at age 14, his uncle apprenticed him out to London. Um, He was growing up in England, and he he moved to the big city at the age of 14 to apprentice as a hairdresser, right? Because that was kind of a thing at that time. Guys going into court and into parliament had to wear those big white wigs, and so he was a guy who fixed wigs and did hairdressing. And at age 17, he went to a church service, and he was radically saved, And so by the age of 22, he was just wrestling with the reality that he was so drawn to the things of the world, but yet God had this claim on him, and he really felt like he was prone to wander. So he wrote, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, I'm prone to leave the God that I love. So that very first stanza, you said, "Um, here I raise my Ebenezer, and a lot of people think of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? So that's not what it is, actually, it's, it's Hebrew, and it's the word Ebenezer, Here I raise my Ebenezer. So in the Old Testament, when individuals saw God perform in their life, they were to put marker stones, like pyramids of rocks, that God had done something. So you see that throughout the Old Testament. God said, make sure you pile some rocks here so that future generations will know that I was powerful in this situation. So you've got Robert Robinson in 1790 saying, God, I am prone to wander. And Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love, and yet I see this marker stone of what you did. You brought me back, and you redeemed me. So he's constantly saying, I'm raising this Ebenezer. Take my heart, God. Just seal it. How many here this morning could identify with Robert at age 22 saying, I'm prone to wander? Right? We, know that, we know that feeling. Even though a believer in Jesus Christ, destined for eternity, God forgives our sins, yet we, under, we understand that. We identify that. So that verse actually has a whole lot of meaning to me, especially when we come into Romans chapter 8, because essentially that's what Paul's writing about. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus, good news. But he goes on to write in chapter 8 about, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God that I love. And so Paul begins explaining not only this monumental truth, that God who is holy, 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 he's moved towards you, he's chased after you, he's pursued you, he brought eternal freedom from condemnation. No condemnation, Paul says, but the reality is he's pursued you because he demands Righteousness. So he's gone after us and he brought us into relationships. So this God who is holy, holy, holy demands righteousness and Jesus brings it for us. But God says there's an expectation I have for you because I've given you righteousness because I know you can't get there on your own. Now you may be a really, really, really nice person this morning. You may be a rule keeper. Maybe you obey all the laws. But God says keeping the laws doesn't do it for you. Let me take you to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Just do a little review with you of some of the stuff we've looked at. In verse 3 it says, for what the law could not do, see there's a rule keeper, for what the law, the rules could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So verses 1 and 3 are stating this huge spiritual reality. Paul's declaring this truth, God did it. Because we can't do it. We can't get there on our own. Even as believers in Jesus, we're prone to wander, let alone before we come to Jesus. So Jesus had to come to heal my internal damage. He had to come to heal your internal damage. Now, some of you have a copy of the Bible this morning that's the New International Version, the NIV. Maybe if you look at the margin in your Bible, it'll just say NIV there. What you see on the screen is not the NIV. This is the, the version I teach out of, and it's called the New American Standard Version. And the reason I wanted to highlight the difference for you this morning is you see what I underlined as he condemned sin in the flesh? Well, that statement is not in the NIV. Actually, in the NIV, it reads a little bit different. And the NIV says this so he condemned sin in sinful man. But the literal translation in the Greek language is he condemned sin in the flesh. So what's the big deal, Mark, why are you bringing that out? Well, This verse, it's referring to Jesus. It's referring to what God had to do in Jesus. God had to bring condemnation. He's referring to Jesus' humanness, not ours. See, we're already condemned. We're born condemned because we're the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and we're born into sin. But Jesus is perfect, and He had no sin. But he had to become condemned for us. So that's why Scripture says, he who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. Even though he was perfect, God had to condemn the flesh in Jesus in order to bring about righteousness in you. So verse 4 goes on to say, so that so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. See, God's requirement is that righteousness would be placed upon you because you can't get it on your own. And God demands it. So God's action, check this, God's action in Jesus was exactly what was demanded of you. And you couldn't do it. So God met God's own requirement. God did that for you. Amen? Good news. Derek, are you up there? I'm sorry, I'm going to turn my mic off a second. Backside of bronchitis, and it's all gone, but the cough lingers. So, I might have to turn my mic off a few times. Here's where I want to go with you. Um, We talked two weeks ago about the spiritual reality. We gave six of them. Last week, we weren't here because we were out at the new property. And when we were together two weeks ago, when we were in here, we were talking about these spiritual realities that result in spiritual. Activity on our part, spiritual responsibility. Number six, the sixth spiritual reality that I shared with you at that time is that God caused you to become eternally righteous. So this is what I said. Every spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. You just heard a whole bunch of spiritual reality. God brought a whole bunch of spiritual reality to you just in the last five minutes. And so you have a spiritual responsibility as a result of that. Well, when we were together two weeks ago, I gave you six of those, and here's the sixth one. This is the one we landed on, the very last one. Spiritual reality is this. God caused you, in Jesus Christ, God caused you to become righteous. If you're righteous this morning, would you say amen? amen. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that. because God says you are righteous. If you believe in Jesus, I see you as righteous, even when you don't feel like it. So that's a spiritual reality. Look at the spiritual responsibility that goes with it. Because God sees you as righteous, God expects those whom he has made eternally righteous that they're going to walk in righteousness while on this earth. So you find the God who in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament says, I'm holy, I'm holy, 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 so you be holy. And you go to the New Testament, and you find Peter writing the exact same thing. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. So you be holy. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. God says, this is what I expect of the people who chase after me, the ones whom I have a claim on. I don't know how many of you uh, grew up in church. Let's, let's just do a quick little survey. If you were in church as a child, would you raise your hand? Oh, a lot of you. Okay. Oh, huge percentage. Last service, not so much. Previous service. So a lot of you were here, or not here, but in a church of some type as a child. So maybe you know this song that I was taught when I was like four years old. I still have it burned in my mind. I don't know if they still teach it in children's programs, but it goes like this. Um, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little mouth. I don't know what mouth one was. Um, So it it went on like this. I still remember that really elderly woman who was teaching me that song. And, and she had a really crackly voice, and she, she would sing just as loud as the kids, and she would say, for the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. This is what Paul's talking about. And that song just kind of popped back in my mind. I haven't thought about it in decades. but It came to the front of my mind this morning, when I was, um, this week, as I'm working through verse 5, because I see where Paul's going with this. God, who's holy, holy, holy who has pursued you and has now said, there's no condemnation on you because you're in Jesus Christ. And God says, I expect something. I expect a responsibility out of you because I have pursued you. So Paul writes verse 5, and when he uses the word for in the very beginning, it's just like the word because. So it starts this way. Because or for those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, verse 6. I'm just taking this in a chunk. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Catch this? This is scary. It is not even able to do so, verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You just said, you're, you're the righteous. You're, you're the one whom God sees as righteous. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. So God says, we are those who used to be under the control of sin, not now. Now we're guided by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's point is, believers do not behave like the people who are not belonging to God. We behave differently. There's been a transfusion. You've got new blood going through your veins. God has changed you. There's something different about you. You are a new race. I want to be very careful about how I say this, and I don't want you to misunderstand me whatsoever. Race relations are a big deal going on in our world right now. Race relations were a big deal 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 2,000 years ago. But it's dominant in our lifetime, it's all over the news. and I know that it grieves God's heart that we live in a world where people are looked down on because of the color of their skin or where they came from or their economic status. That's not biblical and that's not of God. But hear this, and this is where I wanted to be gentle. God is really only concerned with one thing, He's concerned with the human race. And in His concern with the human race, He actually says, there's only two kinds of people. Those who belong to me and those who do not. And so I'm just asking you this morning, where are you at in that? Because even in that issue, God doesn't tell us that so that we'll look down on someone else as though we're superior, like we understand God and you don't. God says, no, I want you to know that because my heart its not willing that anyone would perish. I want everyone to come to repentance. So according to God is what you're seeing in verse 5, there are actually only two groups of people. There are those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. That's what's really coming out of this. So where are you in this issue this morning? What are you dealing with according to this? Well, how do you gauge it? You can gauge it. Paul wrote this in a way that we can understand it. He said, according to. Now, in your notes this morning, if you pull them out of the bulletin, there's two Greek words. And the first one is kata and this one that you see on the screen, kata, it's, it's this phrase, according to. So here's what Paul's doing, he's taking this word, it's only one word in the Greek language, and he says this is a fundamental thing of you. You're bent, what are you disposed towards? Are you disposed towards the things of God or the things of this world? Because as far as eternity is concerned, God takes absolutely zero interest in your gender or in your race or in your education Or whether you have money or don't have money. God doesn't care about those things as far as eternity is concerned. Let me show you that in Scripture. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So God doesn't discriminate in those issues, but God does discriminate on one thing. God does discriminate on the basis of one detail. And the ad, the difference is absolute. You're either in Jesus Christ or you're not. So I'm just asking you, where are you at on this issue? So for someone to say to you, Mark, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as you're really sincere, if you, as long as you really believe that thing, and, and you're a good person, just be nice. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? It'll all work out in the end. Just be nice, as though they can tip the scales in their favor. I just had somebody say that to me this week. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Just be good. Okay, well, God will take issue with that, right? That that is not God's position. That's somebody who doesn't know the Bible. Clearly, there are some people who display really, really great moral behavior. And and their their keeping of the law is just right at the very top. They, They do everything they're supposed to do. Yet... They have a big goose egg when it comes to God, just zero relationship. And sadly, there are believers who do not tend to the things of God as they should. But when we're talking about humanity, every human is entirely either in one group or in the other. They either belong to God or they do not because you can't be just partly dead and partly alive. God says in the physical world, you're either dead or you're alive. In the spiritual world, it's the same thing. You're either spiritually dead or you're spiritually alive. There's no middle ground whatsoever. So Paul writes it that way in verse 5 There are those who are according to the flesh, and there are those who are according to the Spirit. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, those who are according to the flesh, those are individuals who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And those who are according to the Spirit, they're the saved, they're, they're forgiven, they're redeemed. So Paul says there's an indicator. And the indicator is huge. It's found in verse 5. He said what they're setting their minds on. Setting their minds on the things of. And that's kind of a blank there. You fill it in because they're setting their minds specifically on something. The word phroneo is the second Greek word, last word in your notes this morning. And the word phroneo represents that huge sentence you see up there. Big sentence in the English language, one word in the Greek language. And for now, I was literally talking about what do you entertain with your thought life? Where does your mind go? Are you disposed towards the things that are of the world or towards the things of God? And I'm simply asking you this because Paul's writing this in Romans. Do you see this exact same word used in the book of Philippians and in Colossians? Let me show you an example in each of those. In Philippians 2, it says, have this freneto, have this mindset, this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, or in Colossians. Colossians says it this way, set your put put your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. I've lived long enough to know that this is true of me, and I'm assuming it's true of you as well i uh, lived a long time and I understand that the decisions that I make, the things that I'm going to do today, the things that I decide, the decisions you make about how you live, those aren't by accidents. Those are predetermined by how we think, the things that we put our minds on, the things that we focus on. So the Bible gives us a check system. It literally says there's a predisposition whether you're saved or unsaved. What are you disposed towards? So Peter, he's at the end of his life. They're about to execute him in Rome for being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And before they execute him, he writes the books of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter 2.10, he says, those who are not saved, they're indulging the flesh and all of its corrupt desires, and they despise authority. If that one's not familiar to you, in Galatians chapter five, we're real familiar with this if you grew up in church, because we know well the fruits of the spirit. Because Galatians five says, well, if you're of the spirit, you got love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Right? We know that, but you just back up a couple verses because it gives a contrast, and the contrast says those are not of the spirit are those who chase after sexual immorality. And and those who rage with their temper. And they've got lots of selfish ambitions. And that's only three of the 15 that he lists in Galatians 5. And then he contrasts it to the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Of such there is no law against that. So Paul's simply saying in verse 5, there's another way to live. Those who are according to the Spirit, they got their mind focused on the things of God. They're concerned with godly things. Do we have failures as followers of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Do we trip and find ourselves committing sin? Absolutely. But but despite our failure, our orientation, our mindset is on the things of God. And so Scripture is asking you, check yourself. Where are you at in this? I'm not going to spend time in verse 6, I just want to show you one thing, and it's not going to go on the screen, so if you have your Bible open, I just want you to look very closely at verse 6 and and look at what Paul wrote. In verse 6 he says, the mind set on the flesh is death. He doesn't say the mind set on the flesh leads to death. Now, this is an important distinction. There's a reason why he says it that way. It's not as though if I keep thinking and doing and letting my mind go where I shouldn't go and looking at things on the internet I shouldn't look at, and if I let my hands touch things I shouldn't touch, as though that's going to lead to death. No, a person who's unsaved is already dead. He doesn't say it leads to death. He says it is death. See, he's stating a spiritual reality here. It's not a consequence. So you may have individuals in your life who are not believers in Jesus Christ, and according to God's Word, even though they're very much alive and very much mentally active, Scripture says they're dead spiritually. So if you try and have God conversations with some of your neighbors or your friends or your coworkers or people at school that you hang out with in the hallway and, and they don't want to have it or they can't understand the verses that you're sharing with them from the Bible and it doesn't make sense to them, Scripture says there's a reason for that. 1 Corinthians, look with me on the screen, 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and cannot understand them. It should really give you reason to praise God this morning. Because that means unless God intervened in your life, that would be true of you too. But God's word makes sense to you. There's a reason you gather like this. Because God came and he enabled you. An unsaved person is as dead to the things of God as a corpse is to the voice of the living. I, I did a funeral here eight years ago for someone who had a family member die. And I, I didn't know the family member, but they just asked if they could do the funeral here and if I would lead it. And I said, absolutely. But there was a person in that family who was not a believer in Jesus. And they came to me before the service and they said, I'm going to call that body back from the dead. I said, what? What? He said, I'm going to talk to that body, and I'm going to call that body back to life. Well, he did. He he screamed, and he tried to call the body back, and the body can't respond, right? It's dead. The, the, The ears can't hear unless God intervenes. No one is brought back from the dead. God has to be involved. So you and I spiritually, we were born sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, And we're all spiritually dead, and unless God intervenes, this issue demands God's activity in your life. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that only happened for one reason. That's because God invaded your life. Amen? That's what Scripture's telling you. And that's why he says there's two classes. There's people who are alive to me and people who are dead to me, and they've got to deal with this issue. And this is really scary. Because when you come to verse 7, Paul actually says those individuals who are still controlled by the lower nature, they're actually hostile toward God in verse 7. I didn't really like the word hostile, and I've not liked it for years. And this week when I was spending time with this passage, I'm looking through all my resources trying to find a different definition for the word hostile. Every place I went, you know what I found? The word hostile means hostile. Okay? Okay. God says there's some antagonism going on here. There's some antagonism towards me, some hostility. So he's literally saying every unbeliever, whether really, really moral, super good rule keeper, or as wicked as the guy in Las Vegas who's mowing down people with a gun from a hotel, They're antagonistic towards the things of God to all that God is. So Paul goes on to write in verse 7 and 8, they refuse even to submit to the law of God. In fact, cannot. So if you're a believer in Jesus and it confuses you why people around the nation want to take down God's commandments that are found in courtrooms and in city parks and and in school systems, don't be surprised by that. Because they don't want anything to do with that. There's a lot of conviction going on there with that material when God says, you shall not. Paul's saying right here they just can't even submit themselves to it. They're antagonistic towards the things of God. In fact, they cannot. So Jesus' brother, his half-brother James, had this very issue in mind in James chapter 4 verse 4, he, he said it very literally this way, friendship with the world. That's hatred towards God. i got to be honest with you, as a teenager and as a young man in my 20s, I struggled with that verse because I thought, what? I I like the world I'm in. I like my friends. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about pursuing and chasing after the things that would replace God and letting God be second place and putting friendship with the world and the things of this world and putting that in first place. So let's finish this up because in verse 7 and 8, Paul kind of sums it up this way. He's talking about an individual who can't have a righteous life, at least before they believe in Jesus. He says, the mind, in verse 7, the mind, it's set on the flesh, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So follow the logic of this. Clearly, if a mind of a person who does not believe cannot subject itself to God, how can they please God? See, you got individuals running around saying, well, if I just do this and this and this and this, it'll make God happy. And maybe he'll tip the scales in my favor when I stand before him one day. He'll really like me because I did lots of good things. God says, no, you're missing it. You can't please me. If you reject me, how can you possibly please me? It's not possible. So I'm going to ask you to do something this week in advance of next weekend. I I want to take you into a story next week, and we'll spend the bulk of our time in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has a great conversation with a guy who's a teacher of the law, and his name is Nicodemus. And he sneaks into the house that Jesus is in at nighttime. Some of you know John chapter 3 really well, but I'm just going to ask you to live in it this week because we're going to go to that story next week, because Jesus is talking about this very issue, about the flesh and the spirit. And Nicodemus can't figure it out. And so Jesus says to him, you're the teacher of this nation, and you don't know these things that are so elemental? So in verse 6, you find him saying to Nicodemus, this is Jesus speaking, John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, so to interpret Jesus, he's saying sinful flesh, it only breeds more sinful flesh. Only God's Spirit produces life, amen? Only God's Spirit can do that. So you claim that you're a believer in Jesus this morning. That means you've got the Holy Spirit within you. And that Holy Spirit produces things in you. It causes you to want to read God's Word. It causes you to want to know more and more about this God. To show up at church on a beautiful Sunday in October and say, I'm I'm willing to take some time and praise that God. I want to know Him more. Only the Holy Spirit in you can do that. And it leaks out of you. And God says it leaks out of you in things like love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. So if you're sitting here right now wondering, after hearing all this, I'm wondering if I'm really saved I can show you to know how you're really saved, whether or not you are, by just letting your eyes drift down to verse 9. I'm not even going to go into it today, but just see what he says there, because we'll come back to it next week. However, you are not in the flesh. He's talking to the church, right? You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. This word dwell is pretty cool, because it's the word okio, and literally you're going to leave here today, and you're going to go to wherever you live. Some of you are going to watch football. Some of you are going to go outside, and you're going to go do different things. But there's a place where you dwell, where you hang out. I'll do the same thing. That word dwell, that's the way it's used here. Literally, the Holy Spirit, right here where you sit this morning, is in you. Is that not incomprehensible? God's Spirit is in you right where you're at according to God's Word. It's dwelling in you, and it leaks out of you. And because the Holy Spirit is in you, a Christ follower has both the desire and the ability to live righteously. See, that's the very thing that other people can see in you. You go into a coffee shop this afternoon, people can see love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness in you. You go into the store, you go home, your family members, your neighborhood, you go to work tomorrow, you go to the school. People could see this stuff in you, and it is God's great desire that we would live out this perfect righteousness that he transferred over to us, that we would truly walk like his children. You want to know the will of God for your life? Look with me on the screen, First Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You already got justification if you're in Jesus, right? Destined for eternity. But sanctification means you're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. You look more like him. Your actions are more like him. You're chasing after these things. That your positional righteousness in Jesus is reflected in the practical righteousness. The choices you make every single day. The things that you choose to do. And that is so hard, isn't it? Because we're like prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Man, I'm prone to leave the God that I love. 22-year-old guy in 1795 is saying, this is true in my life. It's true for us. Every one of us can identify with it. So what we have to do is what you see Robert Robinson doing. Just stop. Say, God, would you increase my desire to obey you? Because I am prone to wander. And you can do that right now. Just, Just throw it up there before God. Just whisper it, God, I'm prone to wander and I want to obey, God, would you increase my desire to obey? Question, do you think God will respond to that prayer? <laughs> Absolutely, every single time. You want to obey God? You see, he's going to give you the strength to do that. I'm going to encourage you right now just to take a moment because we're going to go into communion. It's only going to take a few minutes, but I want to link what we just looked at with communion. But I'm going to give you a minute just to say, God, I want to obey you better. Would you do that right now? Amen. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's good news. We love it. We cheer for it. God, thank you for that. And I want you to listen really, really closely so you don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. In and of itself, just the arrival of Jesus on this planet could not take away your condemnation. Just his arrival couldn't do that. God had to take action in order to deal with sin. It wasn't enough for everyone to see him and see what perfect righteousness looks like. It wasn't enough for him to just live sinlessly, although that would have been cool. I would have loved to have lived in the first century and seen Jesus. But Jesus' perfect life, it actually increased condemnation. For those who saw him, they had more responsibility. So because of his sinless life, he demonstrated more vividly than the law what it meant to hit the level of righteousness and that we can't do it. Can you imagine as a child living in Jesus' neighborhood and having your mom say to you, why can't you just be more like Jesus? Right, thanks, Mom. Or as an adult, man, look at this guy. He never screws up. He doesn't do anything wrong. Can you imagine the guilt feelings of watching him and trying to live to that standard? the law couldn't help those individuals. The law is completely unable to overcome the malicious power of sin. Legislation's not equipped to conquer. Can't do it. So God had to do more. God had to do more than actually just live perfectly. God had to sacrifice perfectly so that this guilt thing that we've got would be dealt with so that he could atone for it ask yourself this question right now. How much does sin press against you every single day? It's constant, right? It's always there. Even while you're sitting in this auditorium, you're in church for God's sake. And the things that go through our mind, right, it presses against us constantly. So Jesus He not only lives perfectly, he had to remain sinless throughout his entire life, even while sin is pressing against him constantly, and he constantly overcame sin because he's on a mission, and his mission is to permanently put an end to sin. So Hebrews chapter 2 gives us a real clear thought on this, that Jesus, he put on our humanity. It says this, he shared in the humanity of his brothers so as to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives, all their lives dealing with this sin, pushing against them. So Jesus, his miracles, they're immeasurably great. Jesus' teachings, immeasurably great. Jesus' sinless life, immeasurably great. But the supreme purpose in his coming was to be an offering for sin. Without that, everything else that he did, it would have left you unrighteous from God, separated from him. So the one who makes solar systems puts on flesh and helps Joseph make a table. The one who dresses the skies with stars, that same one dresses himself as a slave and he washes the smelly feet of his followers. That same one, clothed with humanity, sits in an upper room and he says to the guys sitting around him, something's about to change. Something different than since the time of the beginning of man. It's all going to change. There's a new deal coming. A promise I'm making to you. And it's going to be in my blood. You find him saying that in Luke chapter 22. This cup, this cup which is poured out for who, church? For, for, for you, This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant, meaning the new promise, and it's in my blood. It's going to cost my life. Because we have guilt, and we can't fix it. God says, I can fix it. Nothing less than the blood of God can wash away your guilt. So God says, I pursued you. I chased you, and I am holy, holy, holy. And because it cost me such a great cost, that spiritual reality transfers to a spiritual responsibility. I am holy, so you be holy. I'm just calling you to that higher standard. So when you come to the communion table this morning, we get to celebrate what God did for us. That's essentially what this is about us remembering that God pursued us, chased us, bought us back. And yeah, we're not perfect but we keep pushing on towards the high calling of Christ. So our tradition here at New Hope is to read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. That's just literally Paul taking a paragraph and saying, here's what happened. Verse 23 says this, I receive from the Lord that which I give to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he's coming again, right? Scripture. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That must mean he's coming again. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, there are to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, before you come up to the tables, either in the back or upstairs or here in the front, we ask you to examine yourself. First of all, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you really don't want to participate in this, because this is for believers, is celebrating what Jesus did. And if you are a believer, I'm just asking you to examine yourself. Take this time right now, talk to the Father about where you're at in your walk with him. And then come to the tables, pick up the elements and take them back to your seat and I'll talk you through the rest. This time is for you to talk to your Father who is holy.